So we're back from Europe. Mm-hmm. Is, we yeah, as far as people listening to the show, it sounds like we never left, but we haven't recorded for, I think, three weeks now, right? Three weeks. So apologies to people if this sounds rusty. We're not, we may not sound like our polished if anything, I think we're more polished. We're more cultured now. Good point. So we also, because we are more cultured, we need to start talking a little bit differently. I don't think I can do that. Well, we just need to sound like we have a little <laughs> bit more, a little more highbrow. Could you try to do this just a no, little bit? I don't think I could. <laughs> just, just try. Just like get it, it's kind of nasally. And yeah. Just always make the pitch of your voice go up. No, I don't think I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all right. So we're still the same old people, but what was what was your favorite part of Europe? You know, everybody from at work, at the school, at my my wife, my laws, everybody's asking me that, and I don't think I can say what was my favorite part because it's a secret. You can't tell. <laughs> oh, I know what it was. It was that yeah. one thing that we can't talk about. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No. Um. I think I enjoyed. I think. Individual, like the individual countries that we visited, I enjoyed a lot, and and there are things in each place we stopped that I really, really enjoyed and I really, really liked. Um, but I think, considering these were not individual trips, like we didn't go to London, back to America, Paris, back to America. You know, this was a combined trip. Um, I, I, the entire trip to me was was amazing, and it, and, I, and I think. Every stop added to the trip, and and not necessarily any one spot is my favorite. I like different stops for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had that question too, and I, I every time people ask me, my stock answer will be the the oh this was beautiful, that was cool. But my mind always will go back to the stupid little stuff every time. Yeah, like our Claude, our friend who was traveling with us. <laughs> Make, making us miss a train because it's two minutes before arrival. And he had to pee. And he goes, hey, I have to go pee. And we looked at him like, are you serious? He goes, it'll be fast. And he runs off. And as soon as he runs down the stairs, the train comes. And we're thinking, should we get on? Should we get off? And maybe, you know, it might be a few minutes. It'll stay. And then it was there for maybe 60 seconds. Yeah, it closed the doors and left. It's leaving and he walks up and... It was just fun because we knew for at least we had a twenty-four hour period where we could just browbeat them yeah. mercilessly for <laughs> for that period of time. Yeah. But yeah, it goes to that. It goes to us drinking beers in the castle and a, the, my server coming up and picking out a. Oh, I forgot a about nat that. Yeah, <laughs> flew, with her finger. Yeah, flew into my beer <laughs> and she set it down in front of me and we had that awkward like she looked at me, I looked at her, she looked down at the beer and thought, well. Like, we both know this is here. It has to be addressed. And I thought she'll get another beer, and she just dipped her finger in the beer and <laughs> pulled her, it out. Yeah, with her fingernail, <laughs> pulled it out, and then just walked away and left me to deal with it. And I and I drank, drank it. fingernail beer. <laughs> yeah, it's that kind of stuff. Oh. Or or us being in Switzerland and being on a public bus and a six year old girl in a pink puffy coat imposing her will on Claude. Yeah, just walking on this bus <laughs> by herself, a bus full of adults. Yeah. She's on there alone and has the swagger of a like 65-year-old, <laughs> like 6 foot 5, 200-pound man just just standing there. 
gets to the bus stop, walks out, and I don't know. She probably went to. She probably hopped off and went to some. She got off at the train station. Yeah, she probably was hopping on to another train to go to her high executive level job. She's yeah, I mean runs, that's that's what it felt like. Yeah, she runs Exxon Mobil. Who knows? Right. <laughs> and so for the rest of the trip, you tried to harness her her gumption and her her confidence, yeah. and it did work sometimes. It, it worked every every time. It worked yeah. for you, not for the rest yeah. of us. Or like you know when we went on the hike in in southern France and we're going down this mountain and it's got all these cactus and I, you know our buddy Claude was like. I want to eat that. We're like, don't touch it. He's like, no, but I want to eat it. And he pulls one of the bulbs out. And he's like, see, there's nothing on here. Ends up not eating it because why would you? Right. And then complains that his fingers got, you know, like the, the spikes and the needles in them. Yeah, for the next couple hours. Yeah. We'll just look down and pick <laughs> these needles out of his fingers. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we had a good time. And we're, we're happy to be back. We're happy to be very cultured now. And we just kind of understand how the world works. Yeah, it's a whole different thing. This is. We haven't started yet. Oh. I mean, I mean, I guess now we start. Yeah. I say we haven't started yet, as if because the musical and it plays. Is that, is that our music? Are you changing our music to this? No, that's. It sounds exactly like it, it goes. It sounds like that. Yeah, there's a little voice, and someone goes like. It's kind of that. People know. People listening are like, yeah, he sounds. Corella, he's got it. He sounds just like the song. Okay. All right. All right. So yes, this is just jujitsu. I am Andrew, and I'm Croyler, and we are here to be your magic carpet ride to Don't the world that. of jujitsu. That is the worst that you could have said. What? That's oh my god! You just hop on, and we can show you the world. It's like getting worse the more no. you talk about it. No, stop it. <laughs> Our carpet ride, you just hop on and we'll yeah. show you the world. Yeah, guys. So <laughs> just get ready, strap on, and it's oh time for the ride. <laughs> I don't know if you're trying or not. I don't know if it's worse if you are or if you're not. <laughs> no, I don't know. You're, you're, you're just, you're overreacting. All right, here we go, everyone. This is episode 34, and we today are talking about straight ankle locks. Are there other term, other names for the straight ankle lock? Yeah, I mean, people call it a foot lock or a straight ankle, or you know, I mean, the in, Achilles lock is that the is, do they no, call? No, it? it's a different. That's Achilles lock is slightly different. That's a little different. Yeah, although some people call a straight ankle an Achilles lock, but but there is a distinction there. Okay, it, it's one of the basic it, for us at least our school. It's one. Of the, it's the first leg lock we learn. Correct. If we're just starting at what the exact straight ankle lock is so people listening know it's where well yeah, i could explain it but this isn't this is people don't come to this <laughs> people don't listen to this to hear me talk about the technical parts of jujitsu would you like to explain for our dear listeners uh, uh dear aries I, what the ankle lock is oh my god dear aries already before we start i think it's more important to talk about like maybe a little bit of the evolution of the straight ankle lock okay i like that um just because i i personally experienced that when i learned ankle locks back when I was, I don't know, nine or 10 years old. I, I don't remember. Even to, you know, even up to 10 or 15 years ago, the ankle lock was done 
with a completely different emphasis on the mechanics that they are today. So, and it's going to sound weird because it's kind of hard to explain without going into really deep, you know, really in depth. But traditionally, and I mean like ink locks as they were done 20 plus years ago, the idea with an ink lock would be you would wrap an ankle uh, forearm around the Achilles and the you would control the legs with a very poor, uh, what now is considered ashigarami, but a very poor um, leg control. You'd push on the opponent's hamstring, push on the opponent's hip with your feet, and then basically you'd have this, like your legs would be pushing the opponent away from you as you would wrap the ankle and you'd go straight back, trying to get your shoulders to the mat. With the, with the intention being of breaking the ankle at the very, very top. Okay, so in, the, the very top, um, like closer to the toes, you're saying? No, like um, higher up the leg. Yeah, no, for so if you took if you took the Achilles and you were on the opposite side of the Achilles, so where you're on top of your shin, like in that motion, basically where you're tie your shoelaces. Okay. Okay, in that part of the ankle, and the idea was, and, and I don't know if this was the thought behind it, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if it was. You know, they somebody saw like a, an arm bar and said, Hey, elbow bends this way. If I hyperextend the elbow past its working range, it'll break. The ankle kind of does that. So if I do the same and mm. I cause a hyperextension, it'll break. And it sure, sure enough, it did. So for years that, that was the, how the ink lock was done. Uh, some people still do it this way. I've seen sambo guys that still do it this way. I'm not saying that all sambo guys do it this way anymore, but um, I, I've met a few guys that are black belts in sambo um, or whatever the proper term is. You you mentioned the feet were they were kind of sloppy. What what would yeah. they what how would they position their feet? So so the idea was uh, we'll break down what what we now reference as ashigarami into. Um, so you'll see a difference later, but. Um, the way that they used to do it is they would put a foot um, on the hamstring, maybe closer to the knee, um, on the inside, in in between your bones growing, and push it away from the leg that you're targeting. And the outside leg, the leg that's not doing anything, would basically step on the opponent's hip and push him away. So the idea was if I push my opponent's leg away and, my, and their hip away, they're going to have a hard time getting closer to me to disable the feet. And then I can hyperextend the ankle and break it. And... Um, and, and again, it's it's the mechanics work. They're not the most effective mechanics, and they're not the most effective form of control, but they worked. And for years and years and years, that's how you practice. That's how you learn, and that's how you practice ankle locks. Um, there was a lot of taboo involved in ankle locks. We've talked about it before in previous episodes. So the progress, the evolution of leg locks was far slower than, let's say, the evolution of arm bars or, or rear nakeds or triangles um, up until about maybe five or six years ago, seven years ago, where you saw a big booming leg locks out of a response for uh, the Danaher Death Squad coming out with great leg locks and attacking. Now, were ankle locks, w w was the straight ankle lock, was that exempt at all from the uh the criticism of like the general leg lock um attitude at the time because i i did i remember seeing i think it was 
on maybe BJJ Heroes, they, they had talked about and it showed an article where Elio Gracie, early in his career, had talked about the ankle lock being one of his like favorite submissions. Was, was it something that early on that was maybe viewed differently? No. Well, I mean, yes and no, right? We, we've talked about the history of leg locks with Fada when we talked about Fada, the episode with Fada and Elio. I don't forget the, the episode number, but... Man, it been the leg lock episode. Yeah. yeah, you know where the issue was. My grandfather very heavily disbelieved the 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 benefit of leg locking in a street fight scenario. Not because the he he doubted the efficacy of leg locks, but because in practicality, unless you are already in an inferior position, going for leg locks, generally speaking puts you in a less dominant position. And should the technique fail, if the opponent is bigger, stronger, faster, you're nervous, you make a mistake, now you could potentially have given up a more dominant, safe position to an inferior, less safe position in a self-defense you know, scenario. So it wasn't that he didn't believe in leg locks, it was simply that he didn't believe the, the value of the application cost too much in a self-defense scenario so um yeah it's not that he like i said it's not that he didn't believe it i think he you know my my there's videos there's footage of my grandfather doing heel hooks mm-hmm. in the gi you know what i mean like which is even more taboo right so you know i'm sure he had favorite leg locks i'm sure he had favorite attacks um, we all do um but the the stigma came up post um, father, right? Posting the encounter with father, where father believed in leg locks and, and my grandfather didn't, and and that stigma got created. We talked about it in the episode, but in a lot of depth, I think it went away for a while, simply because the competitions didn't allow for leg locks for a long time, and straight ankle locks were something that only advanced guys would do, and um, because of this, the it dies down, right? If you if you if you're learning a sport and there is a technique that you cannot do in that sport, there's no point in practicing that, right? Because there is a there is a shift somewhere between the late '70s and early '80s to where jiu-jitsu became very heavily focused on sport, and and it, it picked up that way. So the taboo went away, but people still didn't practice it because it wasn't something that was allowed. Before I I asked that, we were kind of moving towards. Um how it was evolving over the years and it started to change and then the Danaher death squad that's right started to so well well, I mean before the before the Danaher death squad there were plenty of great leg lockers Um, they were very unique and they were seen by the people in the jiu-jitsu community they were seen as kind of like cheaters or or cheap shots you know for the people that didn't know jiu-jitsu it made sense you know you saw guys like Dean Lister who was very, very successful with his leg locks. Um, you saw Padares, um, both in jiu-jitsu and in MMA, applying leg locks. And and those guys were influenced to the Danaher, that squad, to, to Danaher specifically. And while they had made progress on their own, right, uh, guys like Imanari, before Danaher, that squad, Imanari was around, uh, uh, Shinya Yoki, before Darren Death Squad were already doing leg locks. I forget who did it to to um, Anderson Silva. Somebody did it. Uh, somebody did it to Anderson Silva, 
in Japan back in like 2004. Somebody did a flying heel hook. It was beautiful. Mm. Um, it was his only submission loss, I think, in his anime career. Um, so what about I? I kept seeing the name Rodrigo Cavaca. Yeah, Cavaca did a lot of leg locks. Yep. Okay. Yeah, back especially back in the day when they were kind of tabooish. So he would have been a very early. Yeah, um, very kind of very early. Yeah. Guy bringing that on. Okay. Yeah, the other guy, um, Eric Paulson, was an American that did. Uh, a lot of leg locks from catch a sketch can so uh they're a little bit rudimentary a little bit force based but he did do a lot of leg locks he was a lot of influence to guys like hickson and lister and others um you know you look at guys like um josh barnett did a lot of leg locks influence from from um from him so um from eric paulson and so there was a small evolution late 1990s early 2000s these guys were practicing these things again it the, there was an evolution but that's doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot right because the leg locks were always at a such a rudimentary antiquated state that any progress was a huge progress and those guys are extremely successful on. I'm not trying to take anything away from those guys that competed back then that, I mean, the Leicester's a savage. I'm not taking anything away from them, but their leg locks were not nearly as good as leg locks we have today. However, they were more than enough for back then because back then people had no experience with leg locks. They had no experience defending leg locks. And if they had seen it, they had seen a more antiquated version than what these guys were applying on them. Sure. Um, but you fast forward 10 years and to the early 2010s and you start seeing guys like Eddie Cummins and Gary Tonin um, tear up people with leg locks left and right. And this was a, a an evolution, you know, mostly due to um, Donaher. And today, I think that it is... It is indisputable the leg the leg lock evolution, both in terms of popularity, application, technique development, has been in large due to Donaher. So as we follow the progression of the evolution of the straight leg lo- uh, straight ankle lock, what does the modern straight ankle lock so, look like now compared to? Before? So if we're talking about a like a very fundamental straight ankle lock, we're not talking about crossbody ankle locks we're not talking about you know outside ashigami leg locks we're talking about just a very very fundamental leg lock the 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 first thing that changed was how we controlled legs um we Donaher coined the term ashigami um for as a as a specific position in jiu-jitsu um for those of you that don't know, ashigrami in Japanese simply means, it, it literally translates to leg entanglement. It does not specify what kind of entanglement, just leg entanglement. Now, in jiu-jitsu, um, most people default to a specific form of leg entanglement, of leg control. And and that being uh, the in the leg, the inner leg, meaning your leg that's between your opponent's legs, being tucked uh, your foot being tucked on against their hip, the knee pinching towards the target leg, whereas the outside leg steps on the opponent's hip, 
and pinches the knee, uh, sandwiching the opponent's knee, removing knee mobility and hip mobility, allowing you to attack the target leg with full control. The idea being we do not need to control the entire body. We only need to control from hip to knee to ankle because those are the areas that we're targeting. And um, that was a, a huge, just that little change was hugely um, e efficient in, in benefiting leg locks. So that was based on the, now you're focusing on immobilizing that target, that targeted area, as opposed to before it was simply keeping them away, placing your feet in a position that can keep them away and allow you to almost like stall. Like, let me just work up here. This right. will keep you away as I, as I, as I crank on this and, and hopefully it breaks. Yeah. Okay. All right. And that's that's a when we go through it in our our classes and talk about this, the first thing you do is you'll talk about positioning of the feet, hips, knee, and it is surprising how effective that is to keeping someone uh, immobile and just securing yourself to them. You're just really pinching your knees and have your feet. It, it doesn't sound right. You think. Well, why can't they just pull out and stand up? Right. What what is why is that keeping them there? And you're putting very minimal effort into it. So, um, to clarify, you're not immobilizing the opponent. You're immobilizing. You're restricting the your positional relationship to your opponent's leg. So, I can put an ashigami on you. We can both be horizontal on the mat, and then you stand up. My relationship, my positional relationship to your leg will be unaffected Okay. by our position, our, our combined position relationship to the floor. So you're not immobilizing. You are... I'm attaching. If, if anything, you're... Yes, you're like a leech that's just Correct. not being... Correct. You can't take and off. In and that, in that attachment, I am restric restricting your the target leg's mobility, right? So... The reason why that works is because we, we go into basic science. Two objects cannot, cannot occupy the same space at the same time, right? So if I attach myself around your leg in such a way that there is no room, there's no, there's no empty space for your leg to be able to move into or out of, then I've essentially restricted all mobility of that leg. And as long as my relationship to that position my relational my positional relationship to that attachment to your leg does not change then it does not matter where you go because i still control the leg so that's the most important part of the ankle lock would you say well yeah well that's the control part of the leg lock mm -hmm. right any submission is based on two two things your ability to control the target limb and your ability to apply breaking mechanic to that limb um, the same can be said about an armbar right um, a traditional armbar you'd have a leg over the opponent's face a leg across their body but if you cannot control their body you cannot control their head you cannot control their movement then all you're left with is an opponent who can fight his way out of a, an armbar against your breaking mechanics right so every submission is, is a two-part thing the ability to control the target and the ability to break that target right so this is strictly speaking the control portion of of the ankle lock, of the traditional fundamental one-on-one leg lock.
Okay, so is that all of the control aspect? You have your feet positioned on their hips, you have their knee secured, and now you're kind of moving up to your upper body. Yeah, so we have our shoelaces underneath the opponent's hip, one heel on the opponent's hip. We pull ourselves tight, so we take our hips close to our heels, we pinch our knees, and the idea to pulling your hips to your heels is to attach yourself closer to the area that you want to control, so you're heavier, nice and tight, and there's no room for movement. Can you can you scoot Absolutely. too too close to them? Um, no, uh, you may have to adjust if there's a, a large discrepancy in height. So if if they are taller, right? Then... You, can be, you can be you can scoot yourself down so low that you have incredible control. But their leg is just too far to attack. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you have to find that balance. But generally speaking, average person to average person, no, you, you really couldn't scoot down too low. Yeah. Um, so once that happens, uh, then we, we pinch our elbows around the target leg. And what that does is then we now have control from the hip to the knee to the ankle. And it pinched your elbow. Yeah. So you, ha- you, you haven't wrapped yet. No, not yet. Just pin- We're talking okay. about control. Just, right, right. Just pinching it there. Correct. And then at that stage, we have controlled the entire target limb, and, and it becomes how do we want to break it? Do we want to do a heel hook? Do we want to do a knee bar to hold and clock, etc.? Um, Before we hop to that, when you're pinching that the the ankle down, are you? Is it? Should you worry about like where you're pinching down on that leg, or are you right now just focusing um, I, on keeping I, that I, secure? I focus on pinching around the ankle um, only because it allows me the most versatility in attacks. If I'm pinching around the ankle, it's easy for me to wrap for an ankle lock. It's easy for me to heel hook. It's easy for me to transition into a toe hold and other things. But but strictly speaking, as long as you're covering their leg with your with your arm, you're just adding another layer of control. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really matter where. Okay. All right. So you have that secured, and then once you decide, hey, I'm gonna go for the ankle lock. Right. And this is where the breaking mechanic evolution has also occurred right where remember when we talked about earlier the idea was to create a hyperextension of the ankle meaning even with that new control with the ashigrami as we do it today the uh, the breaking mechanic would be to go straight back put your shoulders to the mat and hip into it much like an arm bar causing a hyperextension of the ankle and you can do that however um while that will cause breaks and you can get people to tap it is not the most efficient breaking mechanic. It is much easier to cause a rotation on the ankle. When they would do that, what would be if they're pulling back? What they, was like the fulcrum? There? So they would wrap. They would wrap the the Achilles with their arm, and then they. You know, I've seen people where they would grip their wrist, the wrist that's wrapping the ankle. They'd grip that. I've seen people do a Kimura grip on the shin, which tells you how far back these things were. Mm-hmm. They would wrap the ankle, put a hand on the shin up their own wrist and they basically would have a kimura grip and then they would fall back and hip into it in order to finish interesting yeah and, and, it, and it works you'll get people to tap but it's it's not the easiest way um we cause a rotation by turning the ankle outward right so if you look at, at basketball uh you see guys you, i mean i don't know if you do this but you can look up like highlight reels of like broken ankles in in basketball <laughs> Um, and do you do that? I've done that. <laughs> do you fall asleep to that? No, I mean, I, I'm not going to confirm or deny that. <laughs> that hesitation is the only answer that we needed. I mean, if you look up like highlight reels of that, like a lot of times 
like I didn't know this was a thing. I thought people were breaking ankles in basketball because they're colliding into each other. <laughs> okay. But again, I'm gonna be completely blunt here. I have never watched ever TV or in person of any level of basketball. Even a quarter. Is that a quarter or half? They, I don't know Quarters. how they do it. Quarter. I haven't even seen an entire quarter of basketball. You know what we should do? Hold on a second. But you just made me question it. I'm pretty sure it's a quarter. Yeah, their quarter's cool. We're four quarters. All right, we're good. No, I, <laughs> yo, bro, I'm American. I got this, man. So uh, I've never watched an entire quarter. This makes me think we should do this. We should start a gym basketball team to join like one of the leagues around here. It we'd be horrendous. Yes, but, we would. Oh my god, would that be funny? It could be outreach too. When we get done with the game, we'd say, "Hey, yeah, basketball's not our thing, but if you want to come do jujitsu, uh, come check it out." And then they'd say, no, you guys are the most unathletic people we've ever seen. Yep. I don't want to learn anything from you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I've never seen a whole basketball game. But anyways, uh, somehow I got I got into watching these videos, right? And, and these basketball athletes, these highly athletic, highly conditioned, well-trained, well-fed, well-coached guys would go one way. And then try to change directions very quickly, and their ankles would roll and snap, and it happens all the time. Yeah. And the reason for that is because it is far easier to roll an ankle and break it than to hyperextend an ankle and break it. And and that goes to to body mechanics, ligaments versus tendons. You know what kind of attachment and exposure do each each uh, attachment has? Each soft tissues. If we're talking about ligaments. Where is it attached to? How is it attaching versus the ligament? What kind of range of motion that joint has? What kind of pressure that 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 soft tissue, whether it's a ligament or tendon, can take? And it turns out that rotating the ankle is far more effective than hyperextending the ankle. So um, we we no longer well I'm gonna say I'm gonna say we because I don't know other schools but in our school we no longer hyperextend the ankle we rotate the ankle. Um, and the, the reason, so we still wrap the ankle with our arm, although it's not necessarily required as you get better, but wrapping the ankle is a good thing. The free hand, right, where before people were putting it on the shin and doing a Kimura grip, that free hand goes to their opponent's knee, the target knee, the one that you're trying to break. You, grab, you cup the outside of the knee, you pinch that elbow to your body. You bring, you grab their the outside of their knee, you pull it in. Towards their to, groin. Towards their groin, yeah. okay. And the reason for this is because it's going to create an opposing angle to the direction you're trying to break the ankle. So you don't have to twist as much. Correct, because there's an opposing that. force. Okay. There's less range of motion for them. And at that stage, we have the ankle wrapped. You have the knee secured in the opposite direction. We now have essentially the knee pointing inwards towards the opponent's groin while their ankle points outward. And then all we need to do is pull the opponent's toes behind our back. This causes a significant rotation of the opponent's ankle, and that's what causes the break, the easiest break. What's the motion to properly get those? What's the best way to explain moving to get those uh, toes in a position where they're going to tap? So the, the first thing I tell people at the school, and you've heard this before, is when they wrap the ankle and they grab the knee, is to get the outside of their elbow. So where the forearm and the bicep are connected around the elbow. Um, to the mat at that stage i tell them to take a deep breath and roll their shoulders back uh, 
and rotate to try to get their chest to the mat. But in that rotation, they're to expand, expand their chest into the floor and continue to pull their elbows behind their back. Because as they pull their elbows behind their back, that causes it an even further twist to the ankle. And as the expansion of your chest goes to the mat, we're not, not only bending the ankle, we're hyperextending that, that curvature. I always thought when you say ex extend, expand your chest, it's almost as if you were trying to overcompensate and look like like you're a tough guy, like extending that chest, like shoulders back. Yeah, that's um, not a wrong way of looking at it. Right, which is how I walk around all the time. Um, we know. Because I'm just a super tough guy. You guys may not know, but we know. There's pictures cool. from Europe. Cool, man. Uh, and so... <laughs> <laughs> I like how you brushed there, that off. There are a lot of pictures, <laughs> videos. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I always would get frustrated with as I would go through ankle locks would be I would seemingly follow all the steps and then I would start to turn and I'd expand my chest and I would be I would be straining and my upper body would be shaking and I'd be putting so much muscle and effort into this and then you'd come by and say, hey, you, you shouldn't have to do that. You're doing something wrong. And mo many times for me, it was the placement of my, my arm. Mm -hmm. How do you find, one, where should it be and how do you find that sweet spot? So the best way to practice that particular finding that that particular rotation that angle for that for that rotation is actually to not do an ashigarami, right? To to simply grab the ankle, wrap the ankle as if you were in a leg lock position, as if you were in an ashigarami, control the knee, and try to create a, a cause to try to create enough. Try to apply the finishing the breaking mechanic without the control mechanic. So like sit on like. You're sitting on your like on, on your, your knees, butt, right? On your knees, butt. on your butt. Yeah. Okay. Wrap the ankle, grab the knee, and then try to find that rotation, the perfect rotation with that chest expansion and driving it to the mat. And if you get the, you you it'll be very hard for you to break the opponent's leg because remember you're not controlling the leg, but you'll get a reaction out of your partner, whether it's a jump, a tap, a quick turn or twist. They'll adjust because of the pain. If you find that breaking mechanic, that sweet spot for the breaking mechanic. Then it becomes a matter of just adding control and then re-engaging that same angle. Okay, and then finding exactly where you're putting your your arm. You are using like the blade of the forearm, which is, I mean, just a few inches south of your thumb. Correct. It's kind of the sharp part of your. Yeah, if you're forearm. if you're wrapping it, correct. If you're yeah. wrapping it, yeah. And so, as you wrap that, where where do you want that to be? Because a lot of times people will either be too high on the foot, too so, low. Uh, for beginners, I generally try to tell people to push that blade of the forearm as far through as they can so that the opponent's Achilles sits on their um, elbow pit. Um, but that's more of a training wheel. The reason why we do that is because it eliminates space between the opponent's ankle, the space around your opponent's ankle and your body. So there's less rotation there. and It's easier form of control. But with practice, that's not even something you need. You just need to be able to create that rotation on the ankle. Okay. Let's say you're rolling with someone and you're first starting out trying to hit this in a live roll. What do you do for the person who you start to get this? You have your inside foot underneath, scooped kind of like under the butt, toes against the butt, and then your outside leg is perched on their hip. You just push your hip, push your foot down, and they just hop right over your right. foot. Right. So, so what are they doing when that happens? 
they're disabling your control mechanic, your Ashigarami, correct? So if that happens, finishing the ink lock becomes far more difficult. The best metaphor I have for that is, uh, and I use this a lot when teaching leg locks, it's, it's a very simple metaphor and it makes sense. If I hung a string from the ceiling and I gave you a sword or a knife, whatever your sharp object of choice is, and I said, hey, cut it, and the string is just hanging, and you took the sword or the knife or machete or whatever you want, and you hit this this string, How? what are the odds that you would actually cut that string? Yeah, pretty low. Right, the string would bend with the blade. Now, if I told you that you could hold the bottom of the string and pull so it's nice and taut against the ceiling, right? Mm -hmm. Then even the dullest knife could cut it because there's tension on that string. So if we think of the ligament and tendon in the ankle that we're looking to break, if we lose that control, it's like letting go of the bottom of that string. You can still do it, right? If you hit the string with enough sudden force, you could still cut a string that's not hanging, but it requires so much more power and so much more energy. Um, so the opponent, when the opponent does that, when he when he takes your your leg, your your heel off their hip, and they start hopping over your leg, they're looking to disable control. They're not out of danger yet. They're just buying themselves time. Now, if they can get out, if they can cause you to lose control and nullify your breaking mechanic by undoing your grip or whatever it may be, then they've they've escaped. So in these situations, when that happens, that's where. Um, grappling maturity becomes important. Understanding that you no longer have an effective ankle lock, and it is important that we find a different form of control. Generally speaking, you can go to outside ashigaramis, you can go to inside ashigaramis, you go honey hole, whatever, 50-50, whatever your preferred method of control is, like Russian leg laces and so on. Um, because all of those are, are different methods of control. And then you're just applying your preferred um, breaking mechanic to the leg, which in this case is a straight ankle lock, but it could be the same. The same could be said for heel hooks, right? A heel hook is a heel hook, but you can do it from ashigarami, outside ashigarami, inside ashigarami, 50-50, you know, pick honey hole, pick a position, you know? What about, are there other positions you can hit a straight ankle lock if someone is standing up, if you're standing up? Absolutely. But but if you really think about it, while you can hit it where their orientation is different than what we traditionally think of as an ankle lock, where they're on their butt, whether they're staying up, you are staying up, maybe you're on top, you know, the, the reality is that the positional relationship, meaning your orientation to your target leg, is still the same. Mm -hmm. If opponent stands up, you're still applying ashigarami. You're still rising your hips to your heels, keeping your heels attached to the opponent's hip, your shoelaces to their hip. You're still wrapping the ankle all the same. All the mechanics are, are still there. The position doesn't change because of your relationship to the floor. The only time a position changes is when your position relationship in, in relation to your opponent has changed. So if we think of an armbar from top mount, it is absolutely 100% the same thing as an armbar from close guard, right? Now, you can do a modified armbar from mount that would be different than an armbar from guard, but you can also do a modified armbar from the guard that's different from the mount, right? But let's say I do a traditional armbar from the guard and you fall, that's really the same thing as a traditional armbar from the mount. Right. You know, your relationship, your position relationship to the opponent has not changed. But 
both both of your of your positions of your relationships have changed in regards to the floor right we've talked a ton about the status of leg locks and jujitsu today they're very popular what about just the straight ankle lock is that one that you still see a lot of yeah in both no gi yes see it much in gi because of donaher yes okay so um and it's becoming a little bit of a problem. And this could probably transition into our discussion on ADCC that's absolutely. coming this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. You see this all the time. There are fads in jiu-jitsu. And I'm not saying leg locks are a fad. But um, about 10 years ago, berimbolo was the thing to do. Right? You go into Hiva, you berimbolo, you take the back. It's the easiest way there. It's like almost like a cheat code to the back. And these black belts are pulling it off. Brown belts, black belts, Hafa Mendes, Cobrinha, you know, the Meow brothers, etc. And then I actually just saw this on Facebook Memories. That's one of the good things that Facebook is for. I remember a rant I put on Facebook about, I don't know, eight, eight years ago or seven years ago about... Instinct, uh, I remember that. Yeah, no. Oh, so, different rant, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So I, I took a big team to a, a state competition. I had like 30 people competing, um, no kids, but I'm, when I go to competition, I'm usually there all day cause I'm coaching everybody from the darkest colors to the whitest white belts. And, um, you get to see the kids competing. And to me for a long time, the little kids competing are the most fun out of any match in any tournament because little kids really can't power. I mean, I'm talking about little kids. I'm talking about like the the seven to 11 year old kids, right? There is no physicality involved because they don't have a physicality to, to apply. So it's strictly speaking technique. Now, some people listening may say, well, those are boring matches. One kid gets on top and he wins. True. But every once in a while, you see a kid who gets it, who understands jujitsu, and that kid tears people up, right? And it's highly entertaining to watch a two people that have absolutely the same physicality, meaning they both lack physicality, they both uh, lack athleticism. It's strictly mind and technique versus mind and technique. And it's always been highly entertaining. So anyways, about six to eight years ago, I went to this tournament and I took this big team and I watched the kids because that's like the only really good part about going to a competition. And... Uh, there was this this little girl that that she made it very far into competition. Every match, she would sit down on her butt. De La Hiva, she was a like a white belt. Okay, she would sit down on her butt. She would hit a De La Hiva. She would hit a Brambolo. She'd take the kids back, and <laughs> she would win for nothing. Wow! Right, and it was incredible to watch because, on one hand, I'm like, wow, like look at this girl. She can't be older than seven or eight years old. And she's being boys, she's being girls, she she doesn't care. She's doing the same thing on everybody, and it's working. And then she got to the finals against this, this other boy, and she did the same thing. She's done every match. She sat down, she grabbed the ankle, she did lahiva, she berimbolo. This kid was having none of it, brushed her off like she was nothing, mounted her, armbarred her, and it was over. But it wasn't. It didn't happen quite that way. She tried the brain ball. It didn't work. So she did the only thing she knew. 
she grabbed the ankle, she did a heavid, she tried bearing bolo again. Did not work a second time. At this point, her coach was sitting maybe 10 feet from me, started yelling at her as if this was the final of ADCCs or the final of the Mundials. And he's like, grab that ankle, dude, De La Hiva, Bolo. And he's like screaming at her. Uh, I, I'm, I was glad he didn't scream any profanities, but he was like violently yelling at this girl. And you could tell that after the fourth or fifth attempt that she realized it's not working, right? And she had no idea what to, she had no other game plan. She had nothing else to do. To the point where when the kid finally passed her guard and mounted her, she didn't do anything. She just lay there and accepted the armbar. Mm-hmm. She fought far less than the people that she beat, right? And, and and that was very disappointing. It was really cool to see a girl that young perform high-level techniques. Well, at the time, there were high-level techniques. The brain bowl was new. Um, but it was very disappointing to know that a girl that young that doesn't know how to hip escape or bump somebody over or how to defend an arm bar or even how to like just, just simple, something simple like escaping her hips had been taught to purposefully do the Delhiva to Bernbolo combo. Mm-hmm. And that happens to adults all the time, right? So you see a new fad, a new technique that works all the time. And people tried to copy it. You saw it recently with lapel guard and warm guard. Keenan started doing it. He had an edge on people. And then everybody started doing it, including the white belts and blue belts that don't even know really how to pass a guard or even what a guard is, trying to do a, a more advanced, a newly discovered or newly developed style of guard. The same applies to leg locks. You see a lot of people now going for leg locks at a white belt blue belt level because it's not allowed in competitions there's a lot of competitions that are being more for more forgiving with the rules and you have guys that that's all they know is leg locks they don't know anything else because their instructor is in that fad of leg locks therefore they're only teaching leg locks you don't need to learn how to pass the guard or what a good posture is or a good base so it's a little bit detrimental um you know in, in some senses that mm-hmm. way um, I saw this when, when Blake, you know, our, our, my blue belt Blake, um, at our school, he, um, he competes a lot and he went and competed this Sunday. I didn't even know he was competing. And in the Gi, he fought, I think five times and three of them, these blue belts just dropped to their little, to their butt and attacked his legs. He got out and he beat all those guys. He went into no Gi. He went in the final in, in the semifinals of Nogi, this blue belt tried to imminent roll for an ankle lock. And it was almost comical watching the match because while he did get the Imanari roll, Blake's just looked annoyed. He, <laughs> he like he didn't look like he was upset. He was not or, threatening. He was not yeah, he was just like, All right, we're I guess we're gonna do this. And he he passed this guy's he escaped the the the, the control and passed this guy's guard. And the guy just lay there. Like he, it was like this guy had like he was like, fuck it, that was my my shot in the dark, and I missed. Yeah, but that <laughs> role was pretty cool, right? Yeah, man, that role was really that good. That was great, Dude, man, good job. <laughs> that kid actually told him after the match, hey, man, thanks for not tapping, like implying that he was fighting out of those leg locks. <laughs> so, I mean, like, it's ridiculous, you know, or it's no different than flying triangles. For a while, flying triangles were, like, the thing to do. And Blake, in the finals of his no-gi match, goes against this guy who's long and lanky. This kid jumps for a flying triangle completely whiffs. Blake did nothing to defend the flying triangle. This kid just missed Blake, falls right on his ass. Blake passes the guard and wins. Like, 
there's a little bit of an order to this, right? You got to build a foundation before you're doing more advanced things. Uh, a straight ankle lock is a very fundamental technique and you should learn that because it's a, it's a way to build more advanced uh, leg lock control positions and leg lock submis- submitting techniques like heel hooks, toe holds, knee bars, etc. But yeah, there, there's an order to which you should learn these things. And if your game is all just one very niche area and you're not well-rounded or you're incapable of doing anything else than, than any technique, not just leg locks, could be detrimental. Sure. So let's transition now from leg locks to this weekend. So if if you're here just for technique, that's it for the technique. Now we're talking about ADCC, which is going to be this weekend. So this episode will come out Sunday. and Which AD- is when ADCC come out, comes out too. Yeah, so you know what? You, you have our permission to watch ADCC and then listen to the podcast or you could you could do both adcc is going to go for go on for a while yeah usually does so this weekend what if you're making predictions Uh on what someone is going to see let's say someone has never watched it before and they say croiler why should i watch adcc what's what's the point of it i watched uh i watched uh worlds uh months ago and i was like eating crap and i I almost fell asleep yeah (laughs) yes um so okay, so ADCC is the largest, most professional no gi competition in the world. Um, in for no gi standards, it's like the Olympics, right? So these are the top sixteen guys in every bracket. There's only sixteen people, which is good because you only have to see, you know, four matches, right, in each weight class, um, versus like the worlds where you may see fifty of them per belt, per weight, per age, you know, this is, that's it. It's one, one way class. Either you make it or you don't make it it's four matches per class mm-hmm. or four matches to win, right? There's more matches than, but it's four matches to gold, um, total of 16 guys. And you have the best people in the world here. The top 16. Well, I'm going to say the top 50 because the top 16 guys, inevitably tend to pull out due to injuries illness travel issues um something that's happening right now it's called uh uh, ekc uh which uh, i talked to dr howe about it on on monday because i saw it circulating i thought it was a rumor it's like a viral highly contagious highly aggressive bacteria or, or it's a viral conjunctivitis so it's like a think of it as a super pink eye and it essentially like you call it causes like blurred vision itchiness pain swelling and it's like highly contagious and like keenan had to pull out because of it and there's a couple of guys that were rumored to have it that may pull out of it pull out of adc because of it so you know between things like that or staph infections or injuries i know that gabriel hosha who was one of the more known guys in the 99 plus kilogram had to pull out because he had a lower back injury. So between injuries, people being sick, uh, infections, um, like I said, travel issues and, and all these things, they tend to pull out and they have to be replaced. So strictly speaking, they should be the top 16 people in each weight class. But the reality is it's probably the top 50 people. So we have this tournament where it's, it's not as bloated as some other ones you have a smaller circle it's not going to last four or five days um, Correct. this one is just on sunday 
you get to see how many different weight classes do they have? So they have the 16 kilogram, 77 kilogram, 88 kilogram, 99, and then uh, 99 plus kilogram. And then they have the absolute, and then they have the super fight, which a super fight is whoever the every year the absolute champion fights the previous absolute champion. And then if whoever wins is the super fight winner, and that super fight winner fights whoever wins the next absolute. So Andregon Val, I believe, has won five consecutive super fights. And this year he fights Felipe Pena, who won the absolute two years ago. Does that take place first, or is that the, like the feature final? You know, I don't quite know the order. I believe it goes after. Okay. It goes towards the end of it, um, just because I know there's been different formats over the years. So as far as pacing, styles, what sets this tournament apart from a lot of the other ones? Um, the, the rule set is a little funky. It's hard to plan for. There is a, a certain time amount where you cannot score points um, to where submissions are highly encouraged because making a mistake does not necessarily hurt you point-wise. Um, and then at a certain point in the match, it switches to where points do count. And then it becomes a little bit more difficult because anything any mistake you make could cause a loss even if it's not a submission we'll go back to predictions mm-hmm. what do you think we'll be seeing a lot this year in the in the tournament? um i think you'll see uh on their feet you'll see a lot of wrestling a lot of these guys are heavily focused in wrestling now some guys will decide to pick judo over wrestling due to personal preference but the vast majority will be wrestling based um once it hits the ground you'll see a lot of um, extremely lower body focused people, whether they're attacking leg locks or controlling the legs. Um, and, and, or you will see a lot of people on the other side of the spectrum that are very upper body focused, a lot of chokes and arm bars. Um, you won't see many people that are well-rounded that will attack both legs and upper body. Um, just to the nature of the event, the people that are competing tend to be specialists in one way or another, not to say that there aren't well-rounded people, just that, you know, push comes to shove, you're going to do what you're good at. What people are you looking forward to watching the most? Well, in the 66 kilogram, I actually have the list pulled up here on the, on the, basically on the smaller guys. Obviously, Paolo Miao is a favorite. You know, he's been, he's competed several times in it. Highly, 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 highly experienced competitor. Can submit the best people. Is incredibly tough to submit himself. I believe he has never tapped to a leg lock, so that kind of puts him at an immunity range for leg locks. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen the best guys try to break his legs, and it just it just won't happen. Um, and then the other two guys that are worth mentioning in that weight class, in my opinion anyways, are uh, Nicky Ryan and Kennedy. Uh, Nicky Ryan obviously being Gordon Ryan's little brother, and um, Kennedy being Cobrian's son. Cobrian has been one of the guys that's competed the most he's won the double grand slam he's won adcc he's won everything and his son is competing in his place cobrian pulled out so his son could go into that spot oh, okay um there is one other guy that's worth mentioning that weight class is gianni Guripo, and it's not i'm not taking anything from gianni but generally speaking he's um he does better in gi competitions than in no gi competitions and he is fighting guys that are either extremely experienced competitors in like Paolo Miao and guys that are stri- strictly speaking 
no-gi experts like Nikki Ryan. So he, he kind of comes in a little bit of an disadvantage to the rest of them. Um, the reason why I mentioned Kennedy is because Kennedy, I believe, was the last person to beat um, to beat Nikki Ryan, like to truly beat Nikki Ryan. Mm-hmm. I know that AJ Agerson beat him last year, or not last year, two years ago in ADCC trial, in ADCC. Uh, Nikki got invited. He was the youngest competitor ever. And um, Agerson beat him on points with a couple seconds to go as a close match. Agerson being much more experienced than he was at the time. Maybe not technically superior, but definitely more experienced. And it, and it, and it showed. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kennedy was a, like the last person that truly just kind of dominated Nikki. Um, so it'll be cool to see their rematch. It's yeah. been a while. How much older is Kennedy? Than... I think they're roughly the same age. All right. Yeah. So be yeah. Yeah. I think I think Kennedy might be a year or two older. Okay. Not, not much much older. Okay. Um, at the seventy-seven kilogram, there's a number of guys that that could take it. You know, um, you have Gary Tonin, who's a fan favorite, um, probably the most entertaining grappler in the entire competition. Um, he comes out to win. He comes out to have fun. He doesn't care what he looks like out there as long as he's having fun and winning. You know, it's a, it's a dangerous guy who doesn't care if he looks bad. He just cares that he's winning. And there's no no injuries, nothing yet to say that he Again, won't make it. maybe there is, but they won't announce it. Right? Okay. You're not going to go into this competition and say, hey, my knee hurts. <laughs> but he, has, he hasn't been one of these guys. No, he has not pulled to, out. No, okay. he has not pulled out yet, no. So Tonin will be in there. Um, Wagner Hosha, who is... Um, known in the in the combat jiu-jitsu world. He's super aggressive. He kicked AJ Agarzam off the stage one time. Um, known for being a little bit crude, highly technical, but a little bit crude in his approach. He has no problem with, you know, pushing people's faces and pulling their heads the wrong way, you know, as long as he gets that win. Um, highly experienced guy. Uh, there's Hinato Kanutu, who is super explosive, highly technical, very fluid. Um there's a couple of the guys that are worth mentioning, like Oliver Taza and, and Edwin Namji, who who are good guys, and they usually are at a podium, but they've never really crested the competition. Mm-hmm. Um, my personal favorite in that weight class um, to win is either either Giratone or Lucas Lepri. And um, Lepri, because technically speaking, Lepri is probably one of the prettiest technical fighters, gi or no gi, in any any format um, okay. very rarely do you see him make do a technical mistake um so so he it should be interesting to see if he does and he won worlds this year so he's That's right he's doing well yeah um in the 88 there's a number of guys who you know guys like adam warzinski you know josh hinger uh rustam she sheeps i don't know how to say his last name um that should do well in in that way class i do think craig jones will take it though Okay. Um, always does well. This should be his time to shine. Well, he's coming off a big victory off the, uh, I mean, one of the best grapplers ever, Anthony Johnson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the easiest paycheck he's ever made. <laughs> yeah, that one. Um, and the ninety-nine kilogram. That's a stacked division. Uh, it'll be interesting to see Gordon Ryan. Is it Gordon Ryan that weight class? Yeah, Gordon Ryan and Vinny Magalhães. Those are the two two favorites to win that um it'll be interesting to see because Vinny has beaten gordon he's been one of the guys that's beaten gordon and not ever really been in trouble kind of made gordon look like he was struggling Mm -hmm. you know whether he was or not i don't know but it'll be interesting to see that 
and then in the in the gigantic weight class, the nine plus, obviously, you know, Bushesha. Uh, there's Nikki Rodriguez, who's a blue belt under Donaher, who's been making waves, beating black belts. But I don't, I don't think he he'll he'll win at that weight class. I'm I'm pretty confident that um, Bushesha takes it. Okay, that is a nice little teaser of what's yeah. coming. I think I'm. You know, we might release this one Friday or Saturday. That way, it's it's out there so people can have it. Should before. do like, like Saturday. Yeah, maybe like just Saturday. like like yeah, like Saturday afternoon or something. Yeah, maybe we'll do that. Okay. Anything else you want to say on ADCC? Nope. That's that should be it. That It'll, should, be, should it. be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll look forward. Oh, if people want to watch it, what's the best way to do that? Flow grappling. Flow grappling. You have to have an account, so you have to set yeah. that up. Yeah. It's I don't know how much it costs. I have no idea, but yeah. Yeah, we'll just send. We'll do it for you. Just uh, go to our Facebook page, send us your credit card numbers, and uh, we'll set it up. We'll set it up. Okay. Yeah, we'll take care of you. Don't worry, we got you back. Yeah, don't don't mind any weird transactions past that. Yeah, yeah, those are just uh, those are just uh, commission. It's commission. That's the way to say. It. Yeah. yeah. You know what? We're running high on this one, so we're gonna save D and D to the next episode. Um, Thank just, God. Yeah. Just well. <laughs> just. Just think about. I mean, we know that when we were in when we were in Spain, we walked past a D and D place, and and I could see you salivating as you looked at the the handbooks and all the different. They had these stores that were all like niche stores for different interests, and one was a D and D store. And Croiler was just he is looking, and I could tell he was aching to play again. So we'll get back to the Gecklars and your sword and this the people that you're the messiah of we'll get back there don't worry all right thanks okay (laughs) until then everyone thank you for listening we're happy to be back and recording and we will see you guys next week bye